I'm Alex Mosett, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against who? Against Big Tech Monopolies. We have a couple good stories on the fight against Big Tech Monopolies today. One of them is going to be around uh, Google appealing their ruling uh, against the EU for Google Search, favoring um, their products on Google Search. In the, and the court has now basically denied the appeal and Google now owes a bunch of money to the EU. So we're going to dig into that. That's actually the second topic. First topic is going to be around DoorDash buying Walt for $8 billion. Hi, will you do a video on Walt DoorDash? So yes, we are doing that. And we're going to start off the show with that. Then from there, we're going to cover Google. Then from there, we're going to a little, little play on words here. The Chinese... Instead of antitrust, Chinese lack of trust. And we're going to dig into um, a really good report from the FT um, about basically you just can't trust these Chinese companies listed on U.S. exchanges. Lots of funny business going on there. And then Dollar Tree is no longer the dollar store. They are now raising prices above a dollar. Why? Because of inflation. I've got some great inflation memes and yes, inflation is here. It's not transitory. It's a disservice what these people are doing. The media and others, uh, our leaders, telling us that uh, inflation is is not something to worry about. It's absolutely disgraceful. So let's jump on in with the show. First topic here, you can see DoorDash buying Walt to expand in Europe, $8.1 billion deal. DoorDash's stock is up. After announcing this deal, basically up 18%. I mean, they had a really strong earnings uh, report, so that worked well for them. It also, you know, was definitely supported by this expansion into kind of like Central Eastern Europe, I would say. Let's look at the locations that Walt has. So these are like the Nordics, Finland, you know, it's really a company that started in Finland. So they got... They got the Nordics, the Scandinavian countries, Finland, Sweden, Denmark. Then they got Japan, uh, which DoorDash also has a presence in. Croatia, Hungary, Poland. And then Israel, Lithuania. Czech, Norway, right? Um, Germany, they have three locations, right, at the bottom of the list. And they've got Greece and, you know, but you don't see, for example, France or the UK um, or Spain, Italy. Right. Kind of classical Western Europe. Not really on here. What this reminds me of. Here's what it reminds me of. We've talked about we, we did a whole show covering DoorDash versus Uber Eats. How did DoorDash beat Uber Eats in terms of market share drastically over the past few years? Um, we covered Emil, the former chief business officer at Uber and his commentary on why, you know, I think ultimately it came down to go watch that video. Uh, DoorDash outmaneuvered. Uber Eats. And one of the things we talk a lot about in that show was DoorDash taking advantage of suburban, less dense uh, areas, suburbia, not going into the cities like where Uber Eats and Grubhub and all the big players, uh, incumbents were operating and dumping a bunch of money into. So they went broad and then they attacked the cities. They bought caviar, for example, from Square and did other things to then siege the cities, but only after they'd gotten to a huge point of dominance and scale. This kind of rings similar to that strategy by going to, what do you call this, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, and then like Japan and Israel thrown in there. 
This was a good article, which I thought this was from uh, January of 21 when they when Walt raised a little over half a billion dollars. And it's an interview with the founder here. And, you know, he talks a, a lot about their model. We started with an exclusive focus on the restaurant as it's the biggest local service with an underlying high frequency use case. We quickly learned that the magical product market fit for bringing the restaurant online was to offer a quick and predictable delivery experience from restaurants that didn't used to be available for delivery. Kind of straightforward, right? That's food delivery marketplace. Okay, let's dig deeper. Their service lets them operate in very small cities with, with low income disparity, limited population density, and high labor costs. Hmm. Kind of ring a bell with what DoorDash had to figure out by going to suburbia, right? Very different economics of the business when you're scaling in suburbia than in a highly dense urban city, right? Very, it's actually a very different model. This means that we can operate efficiently, even with relatively low order volumes, enabling us to grow and expand rapidly with much less financing than some of the other players in the market. We simply had no other choice than to do it this way as we came from such a difficult home market in Finland. Let's pause there. I think that's one really important parallel between why DoorDash likes this company. And I think it harkens back to a lot of what they did very successfully in the United States. So that's point one. I think it was the delivery hero CEO threw some shade on the acquisition and said, yeah, you know, we looked at the Walt deal. We didn't like it. They operated in a few markets that we're in and we are way bigger than them in those markets. But that kind of makes sense, right? That dovetails here with this commentary. Their model has not been to go into Germany aggressively and these other more populous countries in Europe where the delivery heroes of the world and those players are operating. Not part of their strategy, really, yet. And I think that's really what um, what DoorDash is betting on here, right? So that's point one. The other thing here is if you look into their longer term strategy, today, Walt is much more than a restaurant delivery service. You can order groceries, electronics, flowers, clothes, and many other things on our platform. We believe that the future of how people buy Nike shoes is a few taps on Walt. And some 30 minutes later, you get any pair of shoes you want brought to your door. That dovetails with Gorillas which got a big check, which um, Delivery Hero led the round, put $235 million into Gorillas to get 8% of the business. Gorillas is one of now multiple. We've had Tree Tran, managing partner at Applico, co-founder um, of Munchery and was CEO of Munchery for many years prior to joining Applico. We've talked about this kind of instant delivery model, and we are very bullish on the model. But you know, that also is an aspiration of Walt to go into this kind of instant delivery model. Now, there's a lot of money going into, there's Gorillas and there's Gatir and there's like a couple others that have raised a bunch of money just in Europe. GoPuff is the big one in the United States. So there's a lot of stuff going on with this instant delivery market. But I think that's the other interesting aspect. You look at what Delivery Hero is doing and, and DoorDash trying to get a foothold in Europe in, in, a, in a couple interesting ways that I think hit on these strategic levers, going to these less dense, more suburban, lower income environments, check one. Check two is to have a play with instant delivery. So honestly, on the surface of it, I was kind of skeptical. Why is, why is DoorDash doing this play? Wasn't really seeing it. After doing more digging, I've actually become more optimistic and kind of, you know, can see where where these guys are coming from. And to close out the strategy, as we've seen with DoorDash in the United States, they do need to then siege 
the urban environments. And that's going to take a lot more capital. And so I, I would see this as actually the beginning. I would see DoorDash needing to pump more money in, for example, to go and buy, like, what's the caviar of, uh, of Europe? You know, what are some smaller players that could be rolled up that have a presence in the urban environment? As you build out suburbia, right? Get keep suburbia growing, but then they do need to take the fight into the urban environment and go on the turf of Delivery Hero and others. So that'll be interesting to see. But I do see that. Last thought on this is, you know, another thing that could have been interesting for DoorDash to buy, a little bit more expensive though, would have been Lyft. So Lyft is $18 billion market cap. Compared to where it opened, I mean, to compared to where it IPO'd, you know, they are, um, you know, considerably down from there. Uh, IPO'd at a touch under 80 bucks a share. It's now at like 52, 53. It's interesting that DoorDash is deciding to expand in a similar, you know, a similar model, just in a different geography, as opposed to kind of doubling down and becoming more of a platform conglomerate in its core market. Maybe this is also on the table. If you really want to take the fight to Uber, this would be the play that I would look at. And obviously Lyft has been hurting, all ride sharing has been hurting, Uber now profitable, but really on the heels of Uber Eats, bringing Uber, the platform conglomerate, over the finish line of profitability. So maybe that's still on the table for DoorDash. But to me, if DoorDash is doing so well, you don't just want to go expand geographically and go into another market where your core business, frankly, does not really have much synergy with that core market. That was my skepticism for DoorDash going into Europe was how much is the base? How much is the core going to actually propel the business in Europe? And, and the answer is not that much. I think strategically it makes sense and it's something that DoorDash likes. And DoorDash can put more money into this and help them expand and take the fight into, you know, as I've talked about. But Beyond that, there's really not too much synergy, operational expertise, that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it it doubles up with Japan with them. But yeah, there's not that much actual network effect synergy as opposed to a deal like a like a lift, where now you get into a secondary, you know, very complementary platform ride-sharing, you know, esque market where you can double up on what the drivers are doing, driving passengers and then driving goods. So you'd think there would be something there. Maybe it's still in the future, but that to me would really be a sign of DoorDash flexing its muscle and diversifying the core business, which I think could be a, a worthwhile thing for them to explore. Next topic, more European discussion. Google loses antitrust battle with EU as the court upholds a 2017 order to pay this $2.8 billion fine. Ms. Fisker is the head of the EU's uh, kind of antitrust regulation task force. She has held Google accountable. What this, is, what this initial ruling from 2017 was for Google search, Google shopping listings, Google favoring its own search results uh, in Europe and giving them preferential treatment on, you know, basically the... Uh, the results page when you're shopping for stuff on Google. Kind of interesting why they've been able to successfully snag Google on this, but you know, what about Amazon? Was um, Amazon subverting this? Where's the Amazon ruling on this? That's my first question. But hey, look, 
a strong win, put it in the win column, another win. We've now seen now, just in the past few months, I think we've seen a number of wins. This is what I was talking about on the last episode. We are in phase two. We're in maybe the second inning of governments, really foreign governments. The U.S. hasn't done much. Foreign governments curtailing and helping to level the playing field a little bit, not a lot of it, but a little bit. With these tech monopolies, we've talked about Australia now, we've talked about South Korea, we've talked about India, and now Europe uh, upholding this fine on Google Shopping, right? This makes Google slower to respond and slower to innovate, makes their lawyers uh, scrutinize the product decisions as Google looks to, you know, expand and, and, and build and innovate on its own model, those lawyers are absolutely hampering Google's ability to innovate and iterate as quickly as they would like and and as quickly as they used to be able to do it. And yeah, sure, the money hurts, but the money isn't that big of a deal, $2.8 billion, Uh, but it's strong. And, you know, this is now a blueprint. There are now multiple examples across the globe of different ways that you can rein in the power. Um, is it breaking up the big the the tech monopoly? No, but is it a step in the right direction? Absolutely. And this, to me, is really the most classical version of how uh, any any monopoly gets in trouble. Especially we've seen with platforms taking, dating back to Microsoft in the '90s. Is Microsoft favored its own uh, Internet Explorer, its own app, its browser over other third party apps, and that is vertical integration that's favoring. If you are the platform to provide a, a myriad of different tools and products and, and service offerings to the consumer, and then you favor your own product over everyone else's, uh, that's not fair, especially when you are the monopoly. That's basically what they got in trouble for. Amazon's doing this. Amazon's actively subverting uh, Indian laws to try and prevent this. Well documented in this Reuters report. We covered that uh, maybe a couple weeks ago when that came out. Now it's become really this good versus bad, right? Where where now you have the government saying, hey, you're not supposed to do this. And now you have the tech monopolies having to subvert that and essentially play games. Um, that was what we just saw Google's Play Store do in South Korea, right? So now when you think about the moral fabric and the culture and the employees, their ability to retain and attract top talent, all that stuff gets impacted, which is good. And is another just slow kind of another one of the thousand cuts against these tech monopolies. But again, this took four years, right? This was a 2017 order, which then they uh, got hung up and appealed and argued it for four years. So it just takes time. to slog through this stuff, but it's good. It's good. Next topic is the Chinese lack of trust uh, as opposed to antitrust. And there's this crazy report in the Financial Times. I mean, this stuff's nuts. We've talked a lot about the decoupling. We had Jacob Helberg on the show uh, with his book, The Wires of War, basically saying, look, you can't trust the Chinese. It's not the fault of the Chinese people. It's the fault of the Chinese government. And the Chinese government does not play by the rules. And um, no one's holding them accountable. And 
that is directly hurting American investors. And that's what this article is right here. How China's tech bosses cashed out at the right time. The Chinese companies listed on American (laughs) stock exchanges, they have more lenient rules than U.S. companies or really, for that matter, any other company. Chinese companies listed on U.S. exchanges have the best treatment, the most lenient treatment. Doesn't make any sense, right? Because there's a bunch of fraud over there. There's fraud everywhere, but they got more fraud than anyone else. Not to mention why, whether it's foreign or Chinese or whatever, why are U.S. companies held to a more accountable standard when other companies want to list on our U.S. exchanges and take U.S. money? Doesn't make any sense, right? It's got to change. And maybe this will wake people up. Remember Luckin Coffee? Luckin Coffee is like the Starbucks of China. Caught literally cooking the books. It's like Starbucks cooking their books. It's a big deal. Luckin Coffee was delisted off of the American exchange. But, you know, there's no concept of a U.S. auditor auditing these Chinese companies. You know, they're just not allowed to have the same level of access. Sarbanes-Oxley, all these things. They're just not in existence. What this article focuses on isn't even about auditing, isn't even about Sarbanes-Oxley and having similar kinds of rules for these companies abroad. We're not even touching that tip of the iceberg. This is just purely around basically insider trading by the founders. And let's dig into it. So in China, there are no clear signs of selling as when Chinese President Xi personally began to attack the industry. So when Xi complained in March that relentless homeschooling was a stubborn illness that puts undue pressure on Chinese children and their parents, at least two Chinese tutoring companies, the head of the company started selling stocks in New York. They also touch on Jack Ma. Let's look at this. Estimated Alibaba executive share sales. So they started selling, you know, stock when they knew that Chinese big tech was going to come under scrutiny. They started selling this. And the problem here is that these disclosures are not actually disclosed. And the problem is this Form 144. SEC is considering changing the rules to require all Forms 144 to be submitted to Edgar. Basically, in the U.S., if you, wanna, if you are an officer of a public company and you sell your shares, you have to notify. That's public information. And within two days, you have to notify of that event occurring. Transactions by Chinese executives have received little attention as they are bound by different reporting rules by the U.S. SEC, which claims that U.S. executives must report the sale of shares within two days. In contrast, executives of foreign companies, this is, I think, all foreign companies, listed on the United States, tend to instead report the total number of shares they hold once or twice a year, or not at all. In the United States, under Rule 144, foreign executives are required to report when they will begin planning to sell restricted shares by uploading or mailing the document. So basically, all these people mail the documents, and then the documents never even get uploaded to the system. They're just in the mail. (laughs) I'm not making it up. It's 2021. You're mailing the disclosure in and it never gets uploaded. Almost all of them have historically been submitted by mail. Surprise, surprise. And the SEC granted access to the documents in the reading room in Washington, D.C., but did not upload them to Edgar. You got to be kidding me. Since April, SEC also accepted email notifications, but has not uploaded them to Edgar either. Private sectors have digitized filings for sale to institutional investors and banks. So basically, if you pay a bunch of money, maybe you'll have a better chance of getting these disclosures. But if you're the average uh, investor, good luck. What a joke. Now, 
the thing with these uh, tutoring companies is they were basically banned from doing business in China. So they knew that the regulation was coming. They knew that they were going to get crammed down. Look at this company's stock. They've since changed their name. Surprise, surprise. But this, the ticker is G-O-T-U. It's still, it's still up on the New York Stock Exchange. It's still trading. Headquarters, China. Number of employees, 22,000. Right? It should be a legitimate business with legitimate business people running it. Nope. Here's the stock history. IPO'd 2019, 10 bucks a share. Boom. Summer of 2020 in the 60s. In the fall of 2020, in the peak, it eclipses 100 bucks a share. Guess when the founder and CEO and all these executives started to sell their shares? Yeah, when it was at all-time highs. Guess when people found out? Never. Or many, many, many months later. Now, the company has been basically banned from doing business in China, and the stock is now worth less than $4 a share, almost 3 bucks a share. Guess who loses? American investors. Guess who profited? The Chinese executives and founders. And I'm sure they're friends. They're, they're friendly investors. They said, hey, you probably want to get out of this thing like... Now, here's the crazy thing with this company. That decline in their share price was, was, I think, in largely because the Chinese government limited and basically banned their business from, you know, the Chinese government basically said you can't have any for-profit tutoring businesses in the country. You have to be non-for-profit. This wasn't even what the Financial Times article was about, but you go to the Wikipedia, GSX, which was the company's prior name, is currently under investigation by the U.S. SEC after more than a dozen research reports came out in 2020 accusing the company of inflating its revenue numbers. Yeah, that's called fraud. And then it says, yes, look, the stock price went down. But that's also because the government regulated them heavily. Not to mention, they were cooking the books. I mean, seriously, we're still allowing this stuff to happen. How many times do American investors need to be taken advantage of? So these tech businesses knew the regulation was coming. They saw it coming from a mile away. They sold their shares. They didn't disclose it. Well, they complied with the rules, or maybe not. Who knows if they really mailed it? Maybe they mailed it, but it got lost in the mail. Who knows, right? And then uh, American investors are defrauded and cheated. It's ridiculous. What is the purpose of our agencies, if not to prevent this exact kind of behavior? This isn't an accidental one off thing. This is a repeated course of behavior, particularly by Chinese companies that don't have any respect or appreciation for American laws. Get rid of them. Okay. Next topic. Let's start with the funny. Let's start with the funny. So inflation woes. I've done a bunch of segments on inflation. Inflation is here. It's not transitory. And not only is now the media and everyone trying to say it's transitory, they're also trying to tell you that inflation, you shouldn't be worried about. This uh, Instagram account, liquidity, they have some amazing memes on this. Um, so you can see all, you know, all the old guard elitists uh, keeling over in laughter, joking that they, they're telling the public that inflation is transitory when it's clearly not. <clears throat> this is a meme video. Inflation 
smacking the bejesus out of the U.S. citizens and Jay Powell, chairman of the Fed, overseeing it and watching it all happen. Now, here we go. Now, this is the brainwashing that inflation is good. This is the Fed training a dog what to say. Dog, MSM, says inflation is good, gets a treat. Hilarious. Uh, what if inflation causes everyone to land in the highest marginal tax brackets? And this is what the government wanted all along. The unfortunate truth in this is the government wants control and they want people to be more dependent on the government. And inflation will accomplish just that. Now, this is really bad from MSNBC. Why the inflation we're seeing now is a good thing. I mean, this is, this is actually criminal. Really bad. And here we go. The report from just a few days ago, U.S. inflation hits 6.2%. Oh, the highest since 1990. Oh, boy, this is bad. This is really bad. Inflation spikes as prices surge 6.2%. You still don't think inflation is here. Dollar Tree is now to sell more items above $1 as costs rise. Discount chain expanding earlier tests to boost prices, citing higher wage and freight costs. Basically, everything is going up. Uh, you can see their stock prices basically in inversely tracking inflation. It just, it can't, you can't sell stuff at a dollar anymore. The inflation woes, you know, and supply chain issues go hand in hand. The one thing which I think is a beneficiary of supply chain issues is the gig economy. And I think it's contributing to, you know, the um, changing labor force in the United States. We've talked about how the gig economy is on fire. Here is this gig worker benefits platform Stride Health announces, a 47, announces $47 million in new funding just in the past couple of weeks, specifically designed for independent workers. To reach independent workers, Stride partners with companies that rely heavily, such as Uber, Amazon, DoorDash, Instacart, and Grubhub, and others. Stride increased health insurance enrollments 3.5 times over 2020. More than one-third of the workforce works in the gig economy. Uh, according to Upwork, this is the article we had where over 90 million Americans are in the gig economy. And those were 2020 numbers. It's not even tracking 2021. And so if we had 90 million Americans in the gig economy in 2020, and this company is now three and a half Xing their volumes for health insurance, not to say that the gig economy workforce is three X, but point is gig economy is only continuing to grow and expand. More and more people are joining the gig economy, especially as you have these headwinds around uh, health mandates, mass mandates, uh, other kind of mandates, which you can figure out what I'm talking about. YouTube listens to all the words, and so you know you can't say certain words. It is going to drive a bunch of people to the gig economy. And actually, I think that these gig economy labor marketplaces are going to have clearly benefited tremendously just because of the ups and downs and work from home and you know all these kinds of things we've talked about how it's just much harder to retain full-time employees in the given work and work environments we've had people comment on our videos affirming this right saying hey i actually make the same money if not more doing gig economy work i was a mechanic i work less hours i make the same if not more money and i get to spend more time with my family so why would i go back to full time right so this kind of stuff's happening all over the place and i think what you're going to actually have to see is you're going you're going to see large enterprises multi-billion dollar companies 
needing to augment their workforce with 1099 gig economy workers on a regular basis, right? Like they're actually not going to be able to even have these people be full-time employees anymore. They're now just going to be like gig economy employees that are working for longer term contracts, um, doing warehouse jobs and trucking jobs and, you know, all these mechanic jobs, blue collar jobs, which, um, you know, they are the real victims in all of this, not only from a work mandate standpoint, from an inflation standpoint and their disposable income, their purchasing power getting wiped out. Gig economy is going to boom even more. Uh, there are some public gig economy companies that you can look at if you want to get in on this. And then there are a lot of specialized gig economy companies, uh, kind of like vertical specific. We've talked about a number of them on the show. Um, rig up being one of the biggest in terms of dollars raised started as a vertical specific labor marketplace for people working on oil rigs has now raised hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Will those workers, because they are 1099 workers, 1099 workers on a gig economy labor marketplace actually subvert a lot of these mandates that are coming down to W-2 employees from the federal government, right? Federal government's mandating this, that private employers have to put these restrictions into place. I think, you know, you're going to just find loopholes, right? Life is going to go on. Someone's got to do the work, but it's going to uh, increase the cost for these companies to deliver the goods because now they're going to have to get the labor from gig economies, gig economy labor platforms, which is going to be more expensive. And guess what that's going to do to inflation, bringing it full circle. Inflation's only going to keep going up. If we were really concerned in this country about inflation, if we were really concerned about helping the lower and middle classes from being wiped out of having any sense of purchasing power, we, this would be the absolute number one concern for the country. Full stop. But it's not. Give you another example. Here is uh, the labor secretary laughing as if the federal government has any ability to influence the price of oil. Look at this. Let me cut to it, if I may. In Sturgis, Michigan, it is $2.89 a gallon. I guess that's better than in California. What is the grand home plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is hilarious. Would that I had the magic wand on this. As you know, of course, uh, oil is a global market. It is controlled by a cartel. That cartel is called OPEC. And they made a decision yesterday that they were not going to increase beyond what they were already planning. You got to be kidding me, right? Like we were just the largest producer of oil in the world. But now she's powerless and has absolutely no ability to influence the price of oil. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. And it's a sick joke. And it's going to hurt tens and tens of millions of Americans in really horrible ways. Oil and the price of oil affects everything else, every, all the cost of everything else, right? So that's one of the biggest ways that you can get out in front of reducing inflationary pressures, right? Make the price of oil go down, okay? This woman is laughing. Labor secretary, uh, what is she? No, the energy secretary, laughing like she has any power 
Energy Secretary of the United States, laughing. Oh, wow, that's really funny. How could I ever have any influence? It's controlled by this cartel in, in Neverland. I can't do anything. Pathetic. That's number one. Number two, then, are the federal government mandated work labor requirements, which are only further exacerbating the supply chain, which guess what? Makes prices do what? Go up. They're actively taking action to further exacerbate the problem of inflation and not help it. The third thing you would do if you wanted to increase inflation would be to continue to spend an ungodly sum of money. When the Fed as we covered on the last episode, is trying to slow quantitative easing and take and not put as much money into the money supply system, which they've now announced they're doing because they're scared of inflation, even though they won't say it. But then the federal government continues to spend trillions of dollars and borrow. We have now spent so much money. No one, no foreign governments, we can't no, one's gonna, no one has enough money to buy the debt from the U.S. government. Now the Federal Reserve has been buying trillions and trillions of dollars of the U.S. government's deficit. Never happened before. Not to any of this degree. Guess who's going to have to buy this debt? The Federal Reserve. So the federal government is going to force the hand of the Federal Reserve to counteract their desire to slow QE. So if the Federal Reserve has to buy the federal government's uh, debt, then, and but they say that they want to slow QE. Well, that counters any potential slowing of QE when the Federal Reserve has to buy the debt from the federal government. So those three things, oil, labor, and more uh, federal deficit spending, forcing the Federal Reserve to keep printing money, is basically three major levers which are actively being deployed to further exacerbate the problem of inflation. This is not going to end pretty. It's a really sad thing that's happening. So I put these, I put my inflation clips at the end of our episodes (laughs) Uh, because unfortunately, you know, the positive is you can get out in front of this. Go watch our interview with Jim Rickards. And if you have money and you see this coming, you can invest and you can diversify to actually benefit from hyperinflationary environments. So go watch that video. There are ways to do this, but, but there is no avoiding the fact that tens of millions of Americans are not going to be able to get out in front of this and are going to be even more dependent on the U.S. government and are going to really struggle even more so to make ends meet. It's very unfortunate. A lot of this could be mitigated, if not avoided entirely. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. Talk to you soon.